Hey everyone, thank you so much for checking out today's episode of Coming Up in My Sneakers. Today we have Shay, I'm gonna fuck it up. <laughs> Invid, Invid, can you tell, say it again? I can, Invidiata, and you nailed it's just, it. It's just Proper. a mouthful, it's just a mouthful. I know I got it before, but. Um, so she is the founder of the nonprofit organization, Free Them. Uh, she's gonna tell us all about that. She wears a lot of hats actually, uh, and she's really best known for her strong voice and everything that she does. So welcome, Shay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, so st to start off, uh, tell us where you sort of grew up, like where you were born and raised. Um, I was born in Etobicoke and uh, when I was about three weeks old, moved to Oakville. And that's really where I, I was raised. I lived there till I was 18. And then I um, moved to the island of Oahu in Hawaii uh, to start my university education. But, oh my uh, gosh, that's awesome. Yeah. What made you go to Hawaii? Um, you know what? It was most people kind of think like I joke when I say this. It was one of the hardest decisions I, I made in my life. I was going, uh, you know, obviously starting my university education and I really wanted to make the right decision of what school I was going to go to. And the obvious is well, it's paradise and you can get like major in business and minor in surfing, right? Like it's the obvious. And I didn't want it to be, I didn't want people to think that. And so I had applied to NYU, Pepperdine University, U of Miami. Um, I got really good offers at a lot of different schools and um, it's a bit longer of a conversation, but I really, I kept getting all of these signs that I was being called to Hawaii and I didn't know why, but I knew that my student visa was going to allow me to be in Hawaii to discover that purpose. And that school was just going to be the thing I was doing. Um, and so, you know, I made that decision, I moved to paradise and really that's where the story of freedom actually begins. And oh, that's where my journey started. That's awesome. Really quick, because I'm so curious about that. Um, did you apply to any schools here? Like, what made you just, like, want to get out of the country? Yeah, um, that's a great, great question. I've never been asked that before. Um, I actually didn't apply to any schools in Canada. Um, I, in high school, I did one of those, like, exchange programs for summer where I went to high school in, uh, in Italy and was with a bunch of my friends. I am very fortunate that from a very young age, uh, you know, my first plane was two weeks old and I've traveled the world and I've always felt that you learn so much more when you're in a different environment, when you are somewhere that you've never been before. And I really saw that when I lived in, in Italy for that, um, about a month I was there, you know, you start learning the language, you learn a different political system, you, um, get introduced to new foods and, all kinds of stuff. And I just felt that I was selling myself short by staying in Canada, uh, which I love, you know, we're very blessed in our country, but I traveled it. I had explored it and I wanted to try somewhere new. Um, and some of the programs too, I wanted, I majored in advertising and Canada at the time, the closest thing we had was marketing. And so that really forced me to look beyond Canadian borders to see where there was a program that aligned really with what I wanted to do. 
Nice. And you're, it sounds like you're smart. You uh, chose all hot places. <laughs> yes, all hot places. I am a sun goddess. So same. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, okay. So you went, so I'm kind of like skipping a little bit through your childhood. Normally I like to like talk to people about that, but I just feel like there's going to be so much after it. Um, so you go to Hawaii and then like, I really am so curious. So first of all, just so people listening under, uh, know, um, free them is a, is a human trafficking nonprofit organization, correct? Yeah. An anti-human trafficking organization. Okay, cool. So tell me about your experience in Hawaii. Like you get there and then like, if, if that all came from there, then like, I'd love to know that story. So have you been to Hawaii? I have not. Okay. So definitely needs to go on your bucket list, especially when we're allowed to get back on planes, you know, flights I'm sure will be pretty cheap. So put that on your list. Um, but for any one of, uh, you know, your listeners who maybe have been to, uh, Oahu, which is where Waikiki is, it's where Honolulu is, which most people are familiar with, of course, even if they've not been there. And when you go into Waikiki, there's three main roads that parallel the ocean. And the middle, um, the middle road is called Kuhio Avenue. And that was where our dorm was. So they took one of the hotels and half of it operated as the hotel still and the other half operated as, um, as the dorms. And if you stay there long enough in Waikiki, you learn that Kuhio Avenue is also known as Candy Lane. And this was where the girls would walk at night. Um, It's called the track, just like where they would walk. And you would go from seeing uh, kids with surfboards and, you know, board shorts, bathing suits with families to the sun coming, you know, dawning. And all of a sudden the landscape would change into half naked young girls and I was 18 at the time and seeing so many girls that were evidently younger than me you know 13 14 15 years old in really high high heels and half naked um and I wanted to understand why why would a girl choose to do this whether you believed prostitution was right or wrong was irrelevant for me and literally this was happening 20 feet on my doorstep. And so day in and day out, you know, I would, I would see these girls, I would see, um, what was taking place, what was going on. And it's a much longer story, which I'm sure, you know, if you want to go there, we can dive into that. But, um, it, it propelled me onto this journey of discovering what human trafficking is and being Canadian, living in the United States of America, the two most free nations really on the planet and seeing slavery firsthand. Um, I wanted to understand why our world was not awake to this, where was our world on this issue and why aren't people doing anything about it? And that was back in 2003. So coming up to, you know, 17 years ago, um, in my life where this journey started. Wow. So where, so when you first started seeing this, I I, kind of, it sounds like you thought that these girls were out there by choice. Mm -hmm. Uh, when did you learn that? um, they were actually not there by choice or like, how did you learn that? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, so I, I kind of, I really wanted to understand, like I said, you know, I wanted to understand why somebody would maybe choose to be in this. And the only way to do that is to build relationship, to build a rapport, to start talking to these girls and no different than, you know, we're all, um, habits of, routine like we're like creatures of habit whether you realize it or not you know most of us 
Um, I'll use like the me for coffee, for example, you know, like I will wake up in the morning, I go do my workout and coming home from the gym, I might stop and go grab a coffee. And at that time, it's like, you know, 830 every single morning. And eventually, you know, you, you start to see the same people every day at 830 in the morning who have a similar routine to you where they're getting their coffee at 830. And over a period of time, you know, that person kind of comes, becomes your neighborhood coffee person where you don't, you don't talk to them at first, you don't smile at them at first, but after the weeks go on, months go on, you kind of do like the little head nod, you do then a half smile, then you do good morning, then it's have a great day, then it's, oh, how was your day? Like, you know, you build up these like conversations. And so that's kind of was my approach with these girls. It was like, I was seeing them day in and day out, whether I was waking up early and going for a surf before going to my classes, I was coming home from my night classes, coming home from dinner, coming home from the clubs, coming home from the bars at, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning. And I would still see these girls, the same faces. And attached to my, my dorm, attached to the hotel, there was a Starbucks there. And Thursday, Fridays and Saturday nights, it stayed open uh, till I believe it was like 1am stayed open like way later than uh, it normally would throughout the week uh, to serve like the, the, the tourists there. And because of that, you would see these girls coming in till like, you know, 1230, one o'clock in the morning getting espresso because of course they're being forced to work all throughout the night. And that's how I, I started to build this relationship. Every, every Thursday I would go in and, study from like the hours of nine to about midnight and I gave my credit card to the barista and I just said anybody that looks the part not asking you to be judgmental but they also see the same girls as well so it's like anybody that comes in that looks apart I just want you to pay for their coffee or their food whatever they order just put it on my card and I'm not asking to be recognized for it so if they ask you can tell them but if they don't ask you can just tell them like today it's free and don't say anything other than that. And, you know, over a period of time, um, I started to build this relationship with some of these girls that came in. Some of them were angry at first going like, I don't need you to buy me coffee. Like, who are you? Why are you doing this? What do you want from me? Right? Like, you know, having their guard up, but over a period of time, this is where I started to learn about their stories. I started to learn about the, fake modeling agency that didn't exist when they arrived on the island of Oahu. Um, learning about the boyfriend that sold them on this dream vacation of a lifetime and when getting to Hawaii turned out to be their worst living nightmare. Um, you know, obviously being on an island of Oahu, you're in the middle of, you know, thousands of kilometers of ocean. It's not very easy to escape, especially when you're Money is confiscated and you're, you're being forced to hand it over. You don't uh, get to hold on to your own identification and documents. You know, it's very hard to be able to actually escape. I started to learn about the forced abortions that these, these women had. I started to learn about the forced augmentation procedures that they needed to have in order to um, cater to the clientele. Um, I'm sorry, are they just telling you this information just over time because they're seeing yeah. you so often? Okay, and you're just shooting the shit with them like, hey, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, and also really quickly, sorry, I, don't, I want you to keep going with that, but where are they coming from if they're not already like native to Hawaii? Where were they being like shipped in from? Yeah, so you would see all colors of the rainbow. Um, human trafficking is also catered around um, 
basic economics, right? Like supply and demand, but also geography. So being that we are in Hawaii, you're, you see a lot more Southeast Asian because it's just closer to uh, import and your goods, quote unquote. Obviously, I don't see them as products, but that's literally how traffickers look at the look at these girls as they are a commodity, they are a product to be bought and sold. So importing, it's cheaper um, and quicker to bring in girls from Southeast Asia to come to Hawaii than it would be Eastern European or from Africa, let's say. Mm -hmm. So when you looked at Hawaii, you saw a lot of Southeast Asian and then also from the Midwest and also the States. Um, a lot from LA as well. So that would also bring in, you know, African-American, you'd see Caucasian, um, and Asian, whereas just to pause for a second, but if you were to look at Toronto and the demographic that we see here, it's very different than even in Vancouver. Again, Vancouver is going to see a lot more of the, the uh, Southeast Asian and Asian influence, whereas in Toronto, we see a lot more Eastern European just off of geography. We see a lot more African as well that's coming in. So in Hawaii, you saw, of course, like, you know, the Aboriginal and the natives to Hawaii, um, along with Asians, African-Americans, that sort of thing. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Because yeah. I, I, when we first started talking about it, I was just assuming that it was going to be uh, Hawaii natives. Sure. Um, but then I didn't really even consider like importing and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so sorry, continue. You were telling me that you were learning about like all the stuff that they had to go through and like surgeries and all that. Yeah. And, and so at the time, you know, what I started to learn was that the word prostitute that we equate so much with choice was widely misrepresented and that the more accurate term to be using is prostituted. And when you learn the word prostituted, you learn that that means that they're being forced, they're being exploited, being held against their will. And that's not to be like confused either as a girl who is being told or in a position of, I have no money, I have no food, um, and a pimp or a trafficker comes along to say, I'll, I'll feed you, I'll put a, you know, a roof over your head if you do this. By her agreeing to that, that for me is not, that, that's not the definition of choice. That's a lack thereof. You know, when you are in that position, nor does that girl ever think that it's going to be this perpetual cycle of hell that she will now be getting herself into of being completely controlled tortured, abused, basically enslaved. Um, you know, you don't, you don't realize that when you're in that type of uh, desperation. And so um, this is what I discovered, you know, that this is what was taking place to these girls. And it was, it was a couple of years later that I was actually introduced to the word human trafficking. Um, back then, you know, I shared with you, my journey started in 2003. Nobody was talking about human trafficking. That word like barely existed um, amongst politicians, in the media, um, even in films. Like, you know, that, it wasn't in CSI. That wasn't in Hollywood. Um, it, it was really not formulated as a word yet. And so it was a couple of years later when I, I realized what was taking place was human trafficking. And then you get introduced to this even bigger problem that you learn that there's over 30 million people today in global slavery and that it's a $150 billion industry 
which is greater than the profits of Google, Nike, and Starbucks combined, just to name a few of our, the major corporations that we can relate to. You know, when you think of the population of Canada having, that is, it. you know, basically, <laughs> yeah, like we've got 36 million people and the state of California has like, I think 33 million people. So I tell people, imagine for a moment that the entire, our entire nation of Canada, as we know it, every single person, every single child, every single newborn from, you know, East coast to West coast, all of our territories are enslaved right now. 80% are women and children and 70% are trafficked for the purpose of sexual exploitation, which is a very cushiony way to say to be raped 15 to 20 times a day. And the average age of entry into forced prostitution in Canada is 13 years old, which I will argue to my death, that's never choice. A 13 year old, that's never Yeah, they, right? they wanna eat and like sleep. Right. That's what they're after at that age. Right. And, you know, and to even have the average being as low as 13 means that you have to have so many kids who are eight, nine, 10, 11 years old being sold and abused for that number to be as low as, as, as an average. average yeah. Right. And that's what I think like a lot of people forget is that even if you see or you learn of a girl who's let's say 21 22 might define her present position in in the sex trade as choice that you know she's choosing to be there or that's what she claims the most important question is when did you pull your first trick and a trick means when did you first service a client when were you when it was money exchanged for the sexual um, service you were providing or being forced to provide. And the vast, the vast majority of those girls will tell you it was definitely not when they were 18 or older, you know? And that's for me, the most important thing is like looking at when, when were you first lured? When were you first coerced into what we call the sex trade? Um, and choice, how we apply that word to the situation. Um, you know, I, I believe very much that it's, it's also another word that's being widely misrepresented. Um, and so, you know, when I, I was 18 at the time living in Hawaii and like I shared with you, seeing all of these girls that were much younger than me at the time. And we all know, you know, as women, we can put on, if we're 13 or 14, we can put on mom's red lipstick, we can put on a pair of high heels, and very quickly a 13-year-old can look like an 18 or 19-year-old very easily, especially if she's mm -hmm. you know, gone through puberty and a bit more developed than maybe the next girl, right? And so when I started learning about these stories, um, I really realized that these girls were victims and their circumstances chose them rather than they chose their pimp. They did not choose their trafficker. And especially back then, um, realize, realizing that they were a victim and really not, uh, you know, um, not whores, not survival of the fittest, not, you know, sluts, like all of these judgmental terms that we would apply to this situation especially as females, more females are, you know, quicker to, to be judgmental on another female than, you know, male to female. And 
I wanted to share their stories. I wanted people to hear the voice of theirs that was being silenced because they were in slavery. And back then I had no idea what I was going to do. I just vowed to myself that I knew I needed to use my voice. And as long as I had a voice, I would continue to, to share their stories. And my journey led me to Vancouver, which also led me to Australia. I finished my degrees uh, out in Australia and coming back to Canada, that- what, Sorry, what degree do you have that? Uh, what, sorry, what were you even in school for? Uh, so I ended up with a, um, a degree in marketing and also um, a BA in religious studies, which is like such a wild card. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I had no intentions going into school to come out with that. Um, but that's, yeah, that's what I hold, I hold it in. Um, and I graduated eventually from the University of British Columbia and I finished off my, my final semester at UBC out in uh, U of Australia, or sorry, U of Sydney in Australia. Um, but this whole topic while I was in Vancouver, while I was in Sydney, kept following me and- And you were seeing it in these other places? Yeah, like, I think once you know the signs and you know what to look for, you know, your eyes are just open. You never mm -hmm. see the world the same way again. And I see things that most people would not, you know, shrug a shoulder to, would not bat an eye to. Some people might go, well, that seems weird or that might look, that looks a little off, but that's usually the extent of it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I came back to Canada, I wanted to understand what our country was doing as a, as a nation that prides itself on freedom. I wanted to understand who was doing what. And what I discovered was there was this disconnect between, at the time, not a lot of agencies that were doing what we call frontline work, which they are, you know, taking in victims of human trafficking and help to rehabilitate and provide uh, safe houses for them. And they were doing all of this work, yet Canada didn't know that this was going on. Canadians had no clue that slavery was happening in our own country. And how do you bridge, how do you bridge that gap? How do you, you know, get people to contribute? Like I shared, this is $150 billion illegal enterprise on the planet. So in order to fight it, you got to be raising money around it. But if you're not aware of the problem, number one, you can't fight it. I always say that, you know, you can't fight something you're not aware exists, number one. But then number two, if you don't understand the problem, you're not going to give any money to it, especially if you don't think it's in your own country. And being that I grew up in Oakville, um, and, you know, for some people that might not know, Oakville, um, it is home to so many CEOs and top VPs, not just in Toronto, but in, in our country. And so being that I'm also in real estate, which is a whole other life of mine, and my father's been in the business now for 35 years. Um, I've been in it for 11 years myself. Uh, that's who I surrounded myself with is I, I've had the honor and the pleasure to work with some of the, the greatest business minds in, in our nation. And I wanted to bring this issue to them, but I'm like, without them understanding it or not, not getting the problem, they're not going to give any money to, towards this. And so that was really what started me to think, 
about what is now today freedom, but founding freedom to raise awareness and the, the default, you know, the indirect thing that ends up taking place with that is that we raise funds. It was never really my intention, but as you're raising awareness, people go, how can I support? How can I give? And so, you know, today that's part of our, our mandate is raising awareness and funds to fight human trafficking in Canada. And we focus on all things to do with preventative measures to fight human trafficking. So we, so sorry, can I just stop you really quickly? I just want to know like sort of your step-by-step process of like how you founded this. So like after you like are finished all your studies and whatnot, did you say like, okay, I'm going to start this not-for-profit or like what was sort of your first steps around like, okay, now I've like, my eyes have been open. Like now what can I do? You know? Yeah. You know, I I had no training in this. I didn't go to school for it. I'm not a counselor. Um, I'm not a social worker. Um, I had never like looked into nonprofits, like I had no training in this. And in the beginning, I really had no clue what I was going to be doing. I didn't have this plan of like, I'm going to, I'm going to start an organization. I just, I wanted to just start talking. I wanted to start, you know, having these conversations at high level places between politicians and business people to say, did you know? Like, do you know that 80% of people trafficked today are women and children? Do you know that we have at any given time, you know, upwards of 15 to 25,000 victims of human trafficking in our own borders? Did you know that, you know, 50 to 60,000 people are, are smuggled and trafficked across the United States borders every year, which means a lot of those people are coming through Canadian borders to go down and end up in the United States. You know, did you know that potentially every missing child person you see, knowing what I know now, those flyers and back in the day, you know, I'm sure you remember too, when we were growing up, it would be on the back of milk cartons, right? You would see like a missing child and it would be on your milk carton. It would be on like poles, like in, in Toronto, you'd see that all wrapped up, which we of course still have today. But I am convinced that those kids, if they've not found the body yet, it's because they are alive and they are they are being exploited through sexual exploitation, forced labor in our own borders, you know? And so back then, I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I called up, you know, people in the media that I knew to be like, hey, I need you to do me a favor. Like I said, you know, we've been in real estate, so we've been advertising at that point, 25 years in the Oakville Beaver, in the real estate books. I was like, I need, I need you to start like covering this. Like, and I worked with the police. Um, I ended up meeting a couple survivors of trafficking. You know, you just kind of started, it's kind of part of like that law of attraction, right? Like what you put out there, you, you attract. And so I started um, bringing people together and not a lot of people know this. So this is kind of exclusive to you. I've only talked about this a couple of times, but my very, very, very first meeting, I had invited out probably about 50 people to the Keg Mansion, you know, on Jarvis. Mm-hmm. And we had about 25, 30 people show up. And I don't know how the Keg gave us that space because I was nobody then. I had no credibility to what I was doing except I wanted to talk about an important issue. And we had the space, I think it was like upstairs. And I literally said, listen, 
I need people in marketing. I need people in administration. I need people in PR. Um, I need people in fundraising. Like, what is your talent? What, what makes you dance? Like, mm -hmm. what are you good at? What are you doing for work? Could you lend your time to help fight this cause? And I formulated a team. And back then I called it an initiative. It was just an initiative to raise awareness about human trafficking. I didn't actually found like the nonprofit like back then. And for years we were this initiative when we partnered with a charity that wrote tax receipts for us because I didn't know if I was going to do this forever. Like I, I was just going with the flow, you know, and mm -hmm. it just started to snowball and we got very heavily involved in our legislator at the federal level, a provincial and the municipal level. Um, and back then and still today, uh, we're a stakeholder to all levels of our government. We have helped to uh, amend the criminal code three times in Canada, meaning wow. changing laws and passing new bills. What were some of them? Um, so back in 2010, um, we've, we've done three different bills. So um, Bill C-268, was a mandatory minimum sentence for traffickers caught trafficking minors. Um, so that was, was the first bill because there was no mandatory minimum that was, that was set. The and what is the mandatory minimum? Five years. Okay. Five years. The way that our justice system works and credits and so forth, it doesn't always amount to that. Uh, but at least we have legislation in place to be able to enforce that from, from the beginning. Um, the second one, so there was nothing, there was no mandatory, nothing before that. Okay. Awesome. Nothing. And at that time, just to put it into perspective of how far behind Canada was the United States and even countries like Thailand had mandatory minimums. Wow. We didn't, you know, um, then it fast forward a few years later, the next one that we worked on, um, was, um, a bill that expanded the definition of what exploitation was because what was happening in the in the courts was we would arrest a pimp we would rescue the victim she'd go to testify and saying that she was exploited and yet the you know in her cross defense right being cross-examined would say well were you afraid at the beginning no sir i wasn't well why none of them were right none of them were and it was like there was no duress in in that beginning and a lot of what happens with these girls is that it, they come on again you're you know going back 12 13 14 years old it is usually an 18 to 24 year old male that's coming on as a boyfriend figure whoever meets their boyfriend and is afraid of him for day, at day one yeah, yeah. Like, zero right? zero people. Exactly. <laughs> all all oh. domestic abuse cases or oh. zero. They were all in love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then they got abusive after. Totally. So this was the issue we were facing was that they were like, but then he switched. My boyfriend, you know, and I'm I'm using air quotes right now, like my boyfriend, you know, told me he loved me and that this was how he was showing me love or told me if I didn't do this, then he would hurt my family. If I didn't do this, you know, he would kill me. If I didn't do this, he beat the shit out of me. Like there, but because the, the first introduction, it was, it was, there was no duress, even if there was, uh, they were being lured or coerced, 
the the courts were having issues with our current laws at, at the time to be able to prosecute that pimp. And so we expanded the definition to include that duress uh, does not need to be present in, in that first introduction in order for exploitation and the intent of exploitation to actually be there. Um, Amazing. Along with that bill, we also laid down what's called an extraterritorial offense, meaning if I'm Canadian and I go to Thailand and I partake in any activities of human trafficking, I am still Canadian when I when I leave that when I when I'm in Thailand and upon coming back to Canada, I can be arrested and charged to the full extent of our laws here in Canada. So you oh, no, no longer have the um, ease of mind, if you will to go abroad to these countries where sex tourism, two words that should never be together in my opinion, um, that you just have this comfort that you're almost protected mm -hmm. being you know, in Thailand. Because um, it's out of their jurisdiction or whatever. Correct. So now we were able to do that, um, which was fantastic. And Americans are responsible for 80% of all sex tourism in the world. So for us being you know, a neighbor to the North, um, and not so much better than Americans, this was a very important bill for us to introduce into the criminal code in Canada. And then the last bill, uh, which was the uh, Bill C-310 that we introduced as, I don't know if you recall or some of your listeners might um, recall that there was the Bedford against the Supreme Court of Canada case that started back in 2012, 2013, and it was a dominatrix and um, another woman named um, Valerie Scott that had struck down the prostitution laws in the province of Ontario. Um, both women entered into the sex trade um, as minors. 13 uh, was Bedford, which she was the plaintiff um, in this case. And claiming now in her 40s and 50 years old 50 years old that she should be able to do this work and she, anyway she struck down the prostitution laws and canada had one year to rewrite the future of our country and what that was going to look like and we worked with our minister of justice the attorney general of canada at the time peter mckay incredible man um, who listened to both sides very strongly testimonies of survivors, experiential voices, different advocates, agencies, frontline workers. And um, that bill, which Freedom was a stakeholder to, basically looked at human trafficking to say, we recognize that the majority of girls are being forced against their will, that they're being forced into doing this. So why are we criminalizing them? Why are we not able to actually go into an illegal brothel, like maybe a condo or a basement apartment, um, to be able to actually step in and rescue these girls? But up to that point, police were only able to remove and detain what we would call a victim if they laid charges on them. And that then literally fucks you up for the rest of your life. As soon as you get criminal charges, mm -hmm. right? Like good luck getting a job if and when you ever get out of the sex trade and you are rescued and trying to repair your life. Like that goes on your record forever. And you know, it's, it's scarring. So rather than going in and laying these charges, we should be decriminalizing the women 
that are being forced to sell sex and that are being abused and profit on. And what we should be doing is criminalizing the demand, the ones that are purchasing them and are actually causing for human trafficking to, um, to stay high because of the money that's being made. So we mm-hmm. need to go after that. That seems like such common sense, but it's like, wasn't, I guess. No, it wasn't. And um, there's a couple countries that have, have adopted this. It first started in Sweden um, and then it was adopted in Norway. And it's also commonly known as uh, the Nordic model. Uh, you know, some people might've heard that. And so we kind of adopted our own Canadian version of that. So decriminalizing the women so that in our country today, it is not illegal to sell sex, again, because we recognize that the majority of those that are, are selling sex are, are forced and also underage. And it is illegal to purchase sex in our country. Going after the pimps, going after the demand, the johns is what we call them, which is just a purchaser of sex. Um, so those are the three laws that we've, um, we've amended the criminal code. We, put to, we implemented a national action plan years ago um, you know, we started up uh, human trafficking motions and legislation at the city of Toronto many years back and still working with them on roundtables and imp- implementing uh, new legislation. We're currently, and we have been for years, trying to urge the Ministry of Education that human trafficking needs to be in the, in the curriculum. Organizations like Freedom and some of our other frontline agencies it's not our responsibility, nor can we be at every school across the province to be teaching, one, what human trafficking is, how not to fall victim to it, how traffickers lure these girls in high school and in schools, but also teachers, knowing the signs, right? Like it should be, when you think of you know child abuse in school, by law, a teacher has a duty to report it. If she sees or he sees, suspects, that a child is being abused, by law, they have to report it. It should be no different than with human trafficking. Well, that's abuse, yeah, like, absolutely. Big time, you know, and those measures aren't in place right now. Um, And so, you know, we're working on that. We've got some other pieces of legislation that we're trying to, um, they're not legislation right now, my apologies. They're, um, we're trying to get MPs to adapt them as motions and then, you know, they go in their first and second readings into the house and, you know, kind of now going into like what some people might think is more of the boring process of legislation. Cause that was me back in the beginning. I was like, God, government politics, all this, you know, bill stuff is so boring. And you, you realize how necessary it is in order to make any instrumental change in our nation. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's, that's That's amazing. a lot of uh, a lot of the work that we focus on and then anything to do with like you know we do speaking engagements in high schools universities um even in in elementary schools in a child appropriate way talking to students um you know i do different uh more like this you know coming on to interviews for podcasts and uh, different speaking engagements and then we do major different community events where we actually bring people together so they can feel like they are tangibly making a difference and standing up for justice and freedom um, around the issue of human trafficking in our country. So when did you actually formally um, conceptualize freedom? In 2010, so January of 2010. Um, and so we just turned 10 years old this Congrats. year. Crazy, yeah, thank you. 
That's amazing. And are you just sort of like, like, do you have anybody that works full time in it? Or is it just like you sort of always are working on it? And is it just sort of you by yourself? Or do you have a team that you work with? So Freedom is and has always been 100% um, volunteer run. Um, nobody on our team gets paid for anything. So we are full time operating and we're run by, by full time dedication and passion. I have uh, five officers on my team and then on our committee, including those officers, there's about 16 of us. And, um, and then I have uh, four board of directors that sits on the board of freedom. And we all have our own different parts and things that we focus on between, you know, like our, the social media and, and awareness stuff, the academic um, innovation stuff, you know, where, where, what areas in society do we need to bring this awareness of human trafficking into. Um, and so we all, you know, we all have our own different parts, but I have a solid team and we all have our own different careers or are entrepreneurs or have nine to fives um, coming from different, you know, faith backgrounds or no faith backgrounds. And we just have one common goal um, to see as many victims as possible being rescued and rehabilitated and fighting human trafficking to make a dent and i've always said that um you know it's a margaret mead quote that says never doubt that a small group of people can change you know can change the world indeed it's the only thing that has ever ever had you know mm -hmm. and you just have to be crazy enough to think that you can and those are the ones that end up doing it you know mm -hmm. and i never met, I thought like living in hawaii and sitting on the, on the beach, having this conversation with myself of being like, you know, I need to do something and I'm going to speak up. I had no idea that it was going to amount to being today one of the most um, nationally recognized organizations that fights human trafficking in Canada. You know, doing all of the bills that we've had, we've helped to rescue over 400 victims in Canada. Wow. Um, operations. Um, Have you gotten to meet a lot of victims that you've rescued or that you've helped rescue? Um, a, a, a good amount. Yeah, a good amount. Um, we, and still to this day, uh, you know, one of the girls that, that free them, um, back in our early days when we, we started that we helped to fund her rescue. Uh, I had the honor of actually going to her wedding, uh, two years ago and seeing wow. her journey and seeing her, seeing how she has healed and she's still on her healing journey. But going from, you know, victim to survivor to thriver, and there's no greater, um, satisfaction isn't even the right word. It's like heartfelt fulfillment, you know? It's like why we do what we do. And if you can change the life of one person and help and, and be a small part of restoring dignity and restoring freedom and restoring self, um, it's all worth it. You know, it's why we do what we do. Um, we have projects that we support over in places like the Philippines and in places like India. I've traveled to both to go see those projects um, and have had the honor again of meeting families and meeting children um, that have been rescued through those sting operations um, in those countries. And it's completely, completely life-changing. Um, human trafficking, as you can imagine, just in our brief conversation that we're having right now, it's a very dark and ugly topic. It's not 
This is not like building orphanages, um, you know, or like building wells for clean water. And um, those, although very worthy and needed, um, it doesn't tend to have as much of the darkness and evil uh, that we face in fighting human trafficking. And so when you have these stories of certain survivors um, and you see their lives, how they've transformed, uh, it's what refuels you and it's what keeps you, you going. It's the reason why we do what we do. Can I ask you, the girl who you're, the wedding that um, you went to, what was her background story? Like, was she from, was she Canadian? Was she... She was. Uh, she was trafficked from Hamilton to Mississauga, um, so not far. Um, and she was offered offered a job, offered a better way to make money. It started out in uh, that sh she was going to be a dancer. That dancer turned into a stripper. That stripper turned into a sex trafficking victim. Um, was she like living at home with her parents like when she was first lured or was like what was her circumstance there like because I think like a lot of people don't even realize that like they think it's like homeless people or like right. people like like I don't really know too much about it but I, I do know a little bit and like when I first ever learned that it's like you know people that are like that have a home a lot of the times that have parents like I think people really disassociate those things like you could tell me more but or you would know better but do you know what I mean like was, what do you know like what her home situation was yeah I, you know it, it, and, and to your point um this is a topic that it's kind of like all scenarios go and um you know in her situation um yes she was at one point living at home and then it's as the relationship get starting to get strained at home. And this is what happens with like a lot of these girls is that even if you are at home, you end up starting to lie, right? Like, because you're in this situation now where you're being threatened that if you tell your family or if you mm -hmm. go to the police, um, that they already have, um, kind of like blackmail material, right? Through photos and different, different things that they have made you do that they have quote unquote, like the dirt on you that they can expose. So what ends up happening is that the girls start lying and you start having this friction in the home. And eventually, you know, you, you decide that you're going to leave the house and you're going to go live with your boyfriend. And that's the story that you're, that you're telling, or maybe it's not even your boyfriend. Maybe you're telling your parents that you're going to go and live at your best friend's house or, you know, at Sally's, um, you're going to stay over there for the weekend and study, you know, but you end up starting to, to lie and cover up what you're doing toppled with like all of the guilt you feel from lying. If you, if that wasn't a previous thing that you would do normally to your parent, but then all of the abuse that's going on, and you think of like a 13 year old girl, a 14 year old girl. Um, and I know, unfortunately, every year, you know, the number of when a girl loses her virginity tends to get lower and lower. But generally, like a, you know, a 12 to 13 year old is not having sex. And so when her quote unquote boyfriend, but is really her pimp, takes that from her for the first time or offers it for sale for a high ticket and says, if you love me, you'll prove it to me by doing this. Mm -hmm. And then she does that. And then she gets used over and over again. This is her first introduction of what love is. 
and it's warped and she knows that there's something weird and not right. And you've got all kinds of emotions that end up going out of whack. So you're not only dealing if you're living at home with like hiding this from your parents, the shame that you would have, the guilt that you have from lying, the fear you have from telling the truth, like the fear you have from asking for help. Um, there's all kinds of stuff that... And like regular hormonal changes during that age as well. Totally. Totally. And you're still, you're trying to figure out like who you are and like, what is even love? Like, you know, and it's supposed to be like at that time, you know, I mean, I remember being 13 and like having the crush on like this guy, like who, of course I thought I like loved, you know, and it's like, oh my God, he like walked by me and touched my arm, you know, Mm -hmm. and you get like these like butterflies and it's, it's supposed to be like that, not you being sold in a dingy motel room and being told that that's what love is and being told that if you love me, you'll prove it to me. And if you don't, I'm going to tell your parents about what you're doing, mm-hmm. you know, and the threats that come along with that. Yeah. So. No, I think it's important. Cause I, I think even a lot of like, um, you know, more like privileged people or, you know, I don't even know what the right word is, but like, I remember when I first started learning about it too, it was like around that time that you mentioned, like I was probably around like 17, 18 as well, Mm -hmm. um, which would have been like more 2007, 2008. But like, I don't even remember how I, 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 or I just maybe like through the media and through movies and you're just like, oh, well that happens in like Thailand and India. Like it doesn't happen here in the Americas, yeah. you know, uh, Canada and the United States and stuff like that. We're just like sort of raised ignorantly to think that. And then when I first started like learning that it was, no, it was actually happening here. And you're just like, what? Then like the next step is like your brain goes to like, oh, well, it's probably people that were like homeless. And then like, then they were like brought that way. So I think like, I don't know, it's important to know, learn that like, no, no, no. It was like, you know, like who, who's been a teenage girl and who's like fought with their parents and like gone and stayed at their friend's house. Probably all of us. Like I've done that. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, how easy is it? Like it's, I think it happens so small and so slow um, that like, it just, then you blink and you're like, how the fuck did I get here? Kind of thing. Like, I think people don't realize, and it can happen some of the other ways I'm sure too, but I think why it's so, um, happening under our noses in Canada and the U S is that it's like the story that you just described, like that's probably a lot of the cases and a lot of us just don't realize it, you know, big time. And, um, you know, you're hundred percent correct in, in what you're saying. And it goes to both students and parents need to start asking better questions. You know, a 13 year old who gets told, um, that, her boyfriend can buy her what she wants whenever she wants and is 18 to 24 and not in, in post-secondary going to college or university needs to ask why they're not going to school. And if they're not in school, how is it that they have so much money Mm -hmm. between 18 and 24 that they can buy them whatever they want, whenever they want, get them alcohol, you know, drugs, the clothes, have their nails done, hair done, like, how is that possible? You know, and when you're 13, 14, maybe you think drugs and alcohol is cool. Maybe you don't. I wasn't that kid. I, I have never touched drugs. Like still to this day, the first time I, I tried pot, I was 32. Oh my God. <laughs> so like, I was like that kid that was like, but all my friends did, but it, I, I was not that person, you know? So 
I just say that because not every girl or every even boy even is going to be like, think it's cool that they're getting like pot or alcohol for free, you know, but then a lot of the girls will think that, that this older guy is like gifting her with like, like all of this stuff. Right. And it's the oldest rule. We all know it, but nothing in life is free. And if it sounds too good to be true, your mama always taught you that it is. And girls need to be, need to remember this. They need to take off like the goo goo gaga goggles. I always have to slow down. It's very hard yeah. to <laughs> you know, but take those off and ask better questions. And like when I was younger, you know, and, and, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now. So when I was younger, I would always say, and I still, you know, do say when I think of like my brother between the ages of 18 and 24, my brother couldn't buy his girlfriend whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. Zero percent chance. <laughs> right? Like, not at all. And, like, my brother was working and also, you know, he was, you know, going to school and all that kind of stuff. But he still couldn't do that, you know? And we're also from Oakville. Like, and if you don't know about that, you can go look it up yourself. I don't need to talk <laughs> about it there. But, like, you know, my brother still couldn't do that. So it's like, how does an 18 to 24-year-old how is he able to do that? Like, sweetheart, you have to start asking better questions. Students, young girls need to be empowered to ask smarter questions. Ask mm -hmm. what he's doing for work. He tells you he's in property management. He's in the entertainment business. Those are like red flags right off the bat. The other thing is, is I, I don't know about you, but I come from an Italian household. If I ever told my father at 13 years old, 14 years old, to bring me to the movies to meet an 18 to 24 year old, my dad would calmly say, sure, no problem. Take me to the movies. Let me introduce him to that guy and literally would kill that guy in front of me. Being like, <laughs> are you out of your mind? Like an 18 year old has no business. Not, none. None. At all, right? Like none. And so, but when you're 13, when you're 14, you're like, it's cool, right? Like the older guy is like, showing you attention and you think it's cool and somebody needs to be talking to our young people that you can still be cool without having a boyfriend that is like 23 years old and is 10 years older than you and in our country would be charged for having sex with you you know like mm -hmm. oh well parents need to start asking and and asking better questions to their children and not going well, this must be like the teenage years where my child just hates me from like the ages of 13 to 25, you know, like parents need to start asking more inviting questions and not make their child feel that they have to, like their, their child is, has to lie to them. Like, you know, some parents are like, well, I'm just going to take away like their iPhones. I'm like, that's not the solution. That help. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, all they're going to do is get one of their friends to buy them an iPhone or they'll go buy an iPhone. They won't tell you about it. And they're just going to lie to you. You're literally building a wall between you and your kid. It's like, you need to empower your child, like help them understand why you're asking these questions. And mm -hmm. you know, I can't, and I love that you brought it up because I have spoken um, and I'll come back to what I was just about to say, but I have spoken in some of the most affluent schools in Ontario and all boys schools from upper Canada college, you know, um, different private schools in Mississauga and Oakville. And every single time I go into a high school, it doesn't matter the community, the demographic, the affluence or not. 
I always have at least one student come up to me afterwards going, I didn't know that this was called human trafficking, but I think this is happening to my friend right now. And Stop. Oh, every time. Oh every time. my God. Every single time. And to your point, those kids that are showing up to school are still going at home to put their head on their pillow in their, you know, in their bedroom under their parents' roof. And yet their parents have no clue what's going on with yeah. their child. And that's the scary part, you know? And I didn't agree with um, Premier, the former Premier, Premier Wynn, when she wanted to introduce sexual orientation choice in grade one. That's irrelevant to our conversation right now. But the point was, is if she's going to start talking about that in grade one, this topic needs to be introduced. Like, it must. It, it absolutely must. must. Yeah. And how is it not still today? And I'm a firm believer that if your child has access to a tablet, a smartphone, any anything that has access to, you know, um, TikTok or Facebook or um, what are some of those other Insta, ones? Insta, Snapchat. Yeah, Snapchat. You know, your child is literally... Um, at risk to being lured mm-hmm. and preyed upon and they need to know the signs. Yeah. And it's not good enough to be like, don't talk to people you don't know. Yeah. What? Like our whole world is online. Like look at you and me, you and I have never met. Yeah, we, exactly. Right? Like we met well through people, but like online, you looked at my Instagram profile. I looked at your profile. I was like, okay, I'll come and talk to this chick. She seems cool. Like that's <laughs> it, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. That was what happened, you know? So you can't tell people like, you know, don't talk to people you don't know. That's how majority of our conversations, it's like how much- yeah, that's our world today, especially now as we're presently sitting in a COVID period. It's the only way you're going to meet people is like mm-hmm. online. So children, young adults need to be empowered to ask better questions. They need to be empowered to be able to think for themselves. They need to be empowered as to know the signs and know what to look for and have a backbone. Yeah. So there was this really interesting article, this woman, um, took over her 12 year old daughter's uh, Instagram account for like a month or something like that. And uh, she like published this article and she was like, I like, she's like, my eyes have been opened. I'm absolutely mortified. I can't believe what goes on. Like the DMS that, that her daughter was getting and stuff. And like, she was like reporting it all and doing the right thing. But she was like, I don't even want to give my, like this back to my daughter. Like, she's like, we've had a huge conversation around it. I've told her what, but it's like, thank God. I feel like, more and it's like yeah is that a lot of work it is but like like I mean I don't have kids but like I like that's just part of being a parent I'm sort like in our world now if you want to have kids now like you need to know that like your kids are going to have a social media account whether you like it or not like at at least I don't know six seven eight like as soon as they can type in a freaking username and password like they just there's no going around it and if you ban them from having like phones and tablets and whatever your friend their friend's parents there's one of them that isn't and so they're gonna go over there and like go on those things on their other like it's just you just gotta accept it I think um but anyway uh, I wanted to ask you before we go, um, what's, what are sort of like any, are you working on any like big projects for this year or like any big, um, like do you have any milestones that you want to hit with this organization in the next like year or so? So we, um, we would have been doing our eighth freedom walk, um, in September this year. Um, 
obviously with the current situation that we're in, we won't be doing that. Uh, last, it's always in September. That was when our, our last one was, it brings together between like five to 600 people. You hear mm. from law enforcement that morning, you'll hear from certain politicians. Previous, we've had like the Minister of Immigration come out, Minister of Status of Women. Um, you'll hear from survivors. Um, I share some words as well. We do a smudging ceremony in the beginning to um, honor the indigenous uh, people and the land that we gathering that we're gathered on, and it's an empowering morning. You learn about the issue, and um, and then we go out and we do a three-kilometer walk, and we shut down the streets of Toronto, and we go up University Avenue, and then we end at Osgood um, Hall at City Hall there. Uh, because that's not taking place this year, uh, because of COVID, we, uh, we will be focusing all of our efforts online. In the past two years in a row, we've done um, a campaign that's called Influence the Impact that's brought together over 100 notable people in, in Canada using their platforms, whether you're um, in television, you could be a health or, or fitness expert, you could be in business, uh, politician even. Uh, but different influencers throughout um, our city. We had even a producer from LA participate last year as well. Uh, so we are looking to launch next year uh, a, a much bigger campaign that's going to be built off of that and wanting to, instead of impacting thousands upon thousands, we want to impact millions upon millions. And so that for us is kind of the silver lining because instead of gathering, which is still super important to do, uh, we're now able to redirect all of our energy and resources uh, online. And like I said, our, our, our focus and our, and our heart is that we'll be able to impact millions of people through this campaign. So more to come. That's amazing. Um, and I know you do so many other things. So uh, at one point, I would love to like, I hope like maybe when this is over, I would love to actually like meet you yeah. and learn about all the other things that you do. But this in particular um, is so incredibly interesting. And I have not met personally anybody that's really like doing this amount of work in this space. Uh, so it's really amazing to hear about what you're doing and I would love to be involved at some point if there's an opportunity as well, because like, I don't know a, a, a lot about it, but like, you know, being a young girl, like it's just, everybody has that, everyone's almost at risk in a way, especially girls, if you're, if you're not aware of the signs like you had mentioned. So like, if there's something that we could do to like, you know, help or, or just like educate or anything, um, I would love to at some point be involved if there's an opportunity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, we'll wrap it up there and you guys, oh, actually, wait, I wanted to just quickly ask you, what is one piece of advice that you would give to somebody who wants to accomplish like some of the things that you've accomplished? Um, I think that we are our biggest critics and we're the biggest um, reason that we don't do something. And so I think not listening to self-doubt and really realizing that anything you want to achieve is possible. You just need to start and get comfortable in being imperfectly perfect. If you are waiting for perfection until you have all of the right things and you know all of the right stuff, um, you will never start. You know, and like I said at the beginning, I had no clue what I was doing. I had no authority, I had no training, I had no education um, to, to warrant what I was starting, but I just knew I could do something. And when you do something, something might happen. 
If you do nothing, nothing absolutely will happen yeah. to people. And never underestimating the power of your voice. Um, you know, as I've shared with you today, my decision to share my voice has amended the criminal code in Canada three times, you know, has helped to rescue over 400 victims in Canada, has affected hundreds of thousands of people, you know, across our nation. And you just don't realize at the time when you start to speak that the power and the depth and the roots and the ripple effect that it's going to have. And, and it really does. So I would just really encourage people, um, to wake up to that and to know that their voice will be heard. Um, and it doesn't need to be an advocacy. This could be like, you want to start your own podcast because you got a topic you want to talk about. Um, you know, it could be in business. It, it doesn't have to be around advocacy, but just never underestimating the power of your voice and your story. Uh, nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can tell you that it's, that it's wrong or not right because it's, it's your voice. You know, it's your story and uh, being so comfortable with being imperfectly perfect. That's Thank you so much. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, so for you guys listening, you can follow Shay on Instagram at Shay and her last name. <laughs> I, can, I know I can say it. It's just like, it is intimidating kind of, but basically it's um, S-H-A-E-I-N-V-I-D-I-A-T-A. So if you guys want to follow her um, and then you can connect with all of the things that she's doing on that main Instagram. Um, otherwise, that's it. You guys have a great week. Um, hope everyone is uh, hanging in there with this isolation and don't get caught wearing dirty sneakers. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye.